Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Spring can't get you out a moment too soon now. I hope we can all agree. What a miserable winter it's been and we South Africans don't do too well in the cold, do we? I recently joined a WhatsApp group that sends out alerts whenever there are protests or disturbances anywhere in the country and it's really been truly shocking these past two weeks just how many there are all over the place, every day, everywhere, all the time. Let's hope none disturb the guests pouring into Johannesburg this week for the BRICS summit. Four of the five heads of state of the BRICS countries will be there with our President Sol Ramaphosa, a smiling, cheerful, grinning, handshaking host. Only Russia's Vladimir Putin's not there, or here, having decided either himself to stay away or having been persuaded not to arrive. Under our membership of the International Criminal Court, uh, he faces charges of child abduction in the course of his invasion of Ukraine, and we would have been obliged to arrest him if he'd set foot in the country. Still some 40 countries or so will be attending, um, many uh, represented by their heads of state, uh, many from the rest of Africa, and at least 20 heads of state from countries like Iran, Argentina, Belarus, Indonesia, Egypt, here because they want to join the BRICS. It's really quite a strange gathering, and even as it begins, it isn't really clear what it's all for. The BRIC countries, back then without the S, Brazil, Russia, India and China, were so named way back in 2001, 22 years ago, by Jim O'Neill, then chief economist at Goldman Sachs. He was simply trying to describe a group of countries that shared a common characteristic, and that might be investable. They each had a massive landmass, each had a huge population. That implied they each had seriously large internal and largely undeveloped or underdeveloped internal markets, which, in turn, implied that they could develop or drive development and the creation of wealth and growth by first firing up internal demand and then satisfying it, before having to go out and compete in the wider world for export markets. The BRIC countries themselves came to see O'Neill's cute analytical trick differently, particularly the Russians and the Chinese. They drew Brazil and India into an informal grouping. Around about 2010, after Jacob Zuma came to office in South Africa, Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping invited South Africa to join the group. That represented a radical departure from O'Neill's initial view of the BRIC four. South Africa is a relatively small country geographically, and its internal market was minute. It still is, in fact. But the group has taken on a distinctly political hue in the past decade, despite repeated attempts to try and give it some sort of economic uh, purpose. Zuma was particularly keen to be seen as joining a sort of new world order, and that animus still motivates the ruling party in South Africa the ANC, today. The queue to join the group would emphasize that. Iran is keen. Belarus, why? These countries tell themselves that the world is still dominated by the US and its currency, the dollar, and that somehow this represents to them a threat. In fact, in the case, I have to say, of Iran, probably Russia, it is a threat. They're both sanctioned by the US, um, which means that any of their money that's held in dollars can be frozen and removed from them. Um, and those sanctions are probably one of, the, one of the primary reasons that countries 
who aren't always that well behaved towards their own citizens, fear US and European reprisal. They imagine, though, that by banding together they can somehow blunt the effect on the international economy of the industrialized West, that their sheer numbers, uh, China and India, account for a vast percentage of the world's population, that those sheer numbers can become the vehicle for a new economic boom period that favors the marginalized or the BRICS countries rather than the West. They increasingly cling to the hope that between them they can challenge the dominance of the US dollar as the core currency of world trade. Amongst themselves, however, the BRICS, now including South Africa, are deeply divided on key elements of the way forward. I mean, just to, just to name but a few, China and India frequently have military clashes on their border in the Himalayas, and they differ quite widely on whether they should be expanding at all. The Russians and the Chinese back some expansion. India and Brazil are not so keen. South Africa wants expansion, but that may be weak because expansion would mean it is no longer the only small economy in the group. In a televised address on Sunday night, Ramaphosa tried to explain why BRICS was important to South Africa, but I'm not sure he made a case for a new expanded grouping. I still don't know what it's for. We want to be friends with everyone, he seemed to say, but without explaining why that couldn't be done. Uh, without the membership of the BRICS. We already trade with whomever we want to, uh, and Ramaphosa's insistent that we are non-aligned, uh, beyond being slightly disingenuous, is relatively new, a useful device resurrected only after we'd openly demonstrated a ridiculous degree of sympathy for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's had a backpedal furiously uh, in the past couple of months, the point where he now says, as he did on Sunday, we support the principle of respect for the in territorial integrity and sovereignty of all states and people. And that repeating, or he's repeating there, one of the key articles of the United Nations Charter. And it's just that phrase about respecting in territorial integrity that has won him back some lost American support. Having said that, it's such a weak form of criticism of the Russians, it kind of gives you a, a sense of the degree to which the Americans are keen not to lose South Africa. So we were a bit of a pawn in an international game at the moment. And I suppose you could argue that Ramaphosa, having found his balance, is playing his game, or his part of the game, quite well. But when he says... BRICS plays an important role in the world due to its economic power, market potential, political influence, and development, and cooperation. Phrases like that just sort of hang there. He provides no evidence to support it. And the fact is, as O'Neill remarked just the other day, the BRICS actually haven't done anything yet, not yet, and probably won't do anything this week either. They might expand slightly, but they're not going to change the world. Except here, South Africa, says Ramaphosa, has benefited from the New Development Bank, which was established by the BRICS in 2015. Our country, he says, has been funded by the bank in several infrastructure projects to the value um, of $100 billion in sectors such as roads, water and energy. Ah, oh, man. Really? You know, Ramaphosa is always saying several, a number of, he's so vague, he never tells you exactly 
what uh, he means. I'd be fascinated to know exactly which projects the NDB money has found has funded, and I'd like to see some evidence of the results. What we do know is that the new development bank was established, and then almost immediately loaned out all its funds to members, some of whom would have used the money better than others. If we tried to borrow more money from NDB today, we wouldn't be able to. It's loaned itself out. You know, it reminds me of Abraham Patel's initial sovereign wealth fund, which he proposed in the new growth path, which you might remember back in 2009-2010. He proposed a sovereign wealth fund and and then a device um, immediately for uh, plundering it. So um, these things are, they're not impressive. This is not impressive thinking, it's not impressive action. The real elephant in the room, though, this week is ideological. The fact is that the two biggest members of BRICS, China and Russia, are, you know, 100% modern-day imperialist powers. Russia's engaged in an actual war for territory that it started in Ukraine, and the Chinese, increasingly nationalistic, constantly threatened to invade Taiwan, and have actually claimed and militarized building air, you know, runways and, and air bases, missiles, um, deploying missiles and troops. Uh, they, they basically just claimed huge parts of the South China Sea as its own, but which countries like Vietnam and the Philippines have historically regarded as their own. What are they supposed to do? Go to war with China? It's really extremely poor behavior. And to ignore these, as Ramaphosa seemed content to do on Sunday, is no way to begin a struggle for what he called a world that is more equitable, balanced, and governed by an inclusive system of global, of global governance. If you lie to yourself at the start of a relationship, what chance does it have of succeeding? You know, and it takes me back 60 years almost to the founding of what was called the Non-Aligned Movement, which many of you may remember. Uh... India, too, at the time, was a leading founder of the NAM. Um, and it's been, it's been, it's still going. It's got about 125 members. Um, it's this huge conglomeration of countries, all of whom have a sort of a, a, a gripe against the West, have a sort of a gripe against America and the Europeans. But it's never done anything. The NAM, the Non-Aligned Movement, has done absolutely nothing except argue among itself uh, about you know which side to take uh, or whether to take a side at all. There was a famous conference of the NAM. Uh, I think it was um, in 1993 or 79 um, in in Colombo, um, where you know really deep arguments. Um, arose. It might have been. It might have been Havana. I can't remember now. But it, you know, they argued about whether to um, support Russia or whether to support the West. Uh, Russia was behaving extremely badly and poorly in Eastern Europe, and uh, some of the founding countries, from the founding members of the NAM, like Yugoslavia, were bearing the brunt of it, and they couldn't get support from countries like Cuba. Anyway, uh, needless to say, Ramaphosa is walking a fine line here. Um, this is uh, non-aligned movement part two. You know, does it do any better? 
His party, the ANC, is openly anti-West. It emphatically sees the BRICS as a counterweight to the US and the EU. It takes sides and he can't hide it. Nowhere is this more evident than in the hopelessly fanciful debate about what they call de-dollarization. It's based on the idea that the dollar is somehow too powerful and the idea supported by the Russians particularly as they've come under stiff US and Western sanctions and they've been deprived of their dollars, the, uh, the Russian billionaires, come under stiff US and Western sanctions for the invasion of Ukraine and they argue that somehow a rival currency to the dollar would weaken the US and the West, uh, balance things out a little bit, make life more fair. Um, all of which sounds just bonkers to me, you know. And while Ramaphosa has tried to remove the debate from the formal parts of this week's summit, it doesn't go away. Just the other day, Anil Suklal, the chief South African organizer of the summit, it's Sherpa, uh, as the people who prepare the way for summits are called, told the Sunday Times that, quote, the time of the global South has arrived. You can't keep us back. Our time has arrived to provide leadership and determine the new geographical or geopolitical multipolar order architecture that we are speaking of. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you would have found somebody in what they like to call the Global South saying exactly the same thing back in 1965, 1975, 85, 95. And that was all during the Cold War. You know, you'd think that the world was only recently divided. Uh, People forget the Cold War. The, the you know the years between the end of it 1989 and 2019 or 2010 whenever um, we started squaring up against each other again that's a brief interregnum uh, the world has always been multipolar and it's not a new thing as our politicians seem to want to tell us that it is I wish I knew what Suklal meant any global currency would require a de- degree of political and econ- economic harmonization between the BRICS members and their admirers that is simply impossible to contemplate now. It took the EU nearly half a century to arrive at the euro, and its members are broadly similar in ways that the people at the BRICS summit this week just aren't. European countries, they're all democracies. They're all pretty much in the same place. You know, you can go from one end of the EU to another without leaving your train without getting out of your car. You can't do that with 125 countries of the national of the non-aligned movement, and you certainly can't do it between countries belonging now to BRICS and those who want to join. And also, for a start, you know, the heads of government of the countries that do provide the world's most tradable currencies, the dollar, the euro, the pound sterling, and the Japanese yen, do something extraordinary. They leave office frequently after things called elections. And for the most part, they have really little real power over the values of their currencies, the market that has the power. The Russians and the Chinese are effectively dictatorships and tightly manage their currencies. Imagine South Africa using a currency whose value was controlled in Beijing or Moscow or Tehran, Buenos Aires. What none of the people jumping up and down about a new world order and BRICS place in it understand is that democracy and open markets make control almost impossible. And it's the absence of control that's attractive about a currency. The dollar is strong precisely because it exists independently largely of politics. Obviously it can be influenced by political events, but it can't be influenced by politicians. The absence of care about the way people live is the missing ingredient in the much 
trumpeted New World Order. Iran's brutal treatment <coughs> of women, China's fascist treatment of Muslims, Russia's barbaric treatment of Ukraine, the autocracy in Egypt and Ethiopia, the repression in Cuba, stand in sharp contrast to the open democracies of South Africa, say, and Argentina and Brazil. Ultimately, they're irreconcilable, no matter how many ringing declarations of brotherhood and friendship their leaders might offer each other. Ramaphosa went on the other day and expanded BRICS will represent a diverse group of nations with different politics or different political systems that share a common desire to have a more balanced global order. Jeepers. I should edit that to read, quote, an expanded BRICS will represent a diverse group of nations, many of which brutalize their own citizens, but who feel marginalized and unloved. Tut-tut. One way not to be marginalized is to run your country responsibly. Don't steal the money. Don't destroy infrastructure. Respect your people. Not many heads of state in Joburg this week would pass that test. In reality, the summit is all a talk. It's a talk shop. There isn't actually much to be done about the shape of the world order, certainly not by this group, and not now. Well, I think that better be it from me for this week. Just in case I say, just in case I say something, I shouldn't. I hope your weather is improving too, and thanks so much for listening to me, and I'll be back next week, same place. Take care. Bye-bye.